You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate. How are you this week, Alison? Oh, I'm very, very, very well. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you for asking. And you? <laughs> Good. What have you been up to? Oh, just, I am, honestly, I am sort of down the rabbit hole of editing and writing, and there doesn't seem to be any apparent, you know, light at the end of my tunnel right now, but there will be. I'll get there. Oh, Why good. Not? Yeah, Why of not? course you yeah. will. Yes, it's, it's, it can seem like that when you're in it the can. depths. Of, it you know, really can sometimes. But no, I'm nearly there and um, I'm sure that I will be, you know, talking exuberantly about the finishing line <laughs> very soon. <laughs> we look forward to it. Well, I have not been down the rabbit hole. Instead, I have been watching writers go down the rabbit hole because, oh. yes, I turned on Foxtel, as I want to do on a fairly regular basis, um, on the weekend and stumbled across this movie called The Ghost Writer. And oh. it's actually Ewan McGregor and uh, Piers Brosnan. And Piers Brosnan plays uh, a British Prime Minister and Ewan McGregor plays the ghostwriter who's writing his memoir. Oh. So I'm a bit partial to movies about writers for obvious reasons. Um, and it was kind of interesting. It's, it's actually more a thriller rather than about the writing process. And um, it reminded me of... Um, you know, just the fact that I went one summer or one Christmas period deciding I was only going to watch movies about writers. Really? Yeah. And I started okay. writing them down and getting through them from the DVD shop and, wow. you know, I know, a bit strange. Uh, and there is one that's, um, well, there was, I think, around, uh, 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 that was out around the same year called The Words. And I don't know if you've seen that. It's with Bradley Cooper, who I'm no. also a bit partial to. Yes, yes. And, um, uh, well, the description on IMDb anyway says, a writer at the peak of his literary success discovers the steep price he must pay for stealing another man's work. Oh. Yeah, so it's quite... That would quite, be a steep price. It's very, very... That's a really good movie, actually. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but uh, do you remember any particular movies about writers or do you even pay attention? <laughs> Um, I'm just trying to think. I'm actually, I was more taken there. I have to admit, I'm going to sidetrack you slightly here because I was actually more taken by the title of that first movie you discussed, The Ghost Writer, mm. because I remember that um, on the Writer's Centre blog, I think it might have been last year, there was a fantastic interview with a ghostwriter mm. about how it works, what gets done, how the, you know, how the work comes to them. Um, and I think it's really worth putting into the show notes because I think ghostwriting is one of those things that people, um, you know, hear about but don't yes. really understand, don't know how it works. Um, and I've done some ghostwriting myself in the past and it is a really interesting process to take somebody else's ideas and thoughts and voice and put them into a book 
How do you capture that person's voice? What do you, if, as somebody who's ghostwritten before, what would you say your tips are for capturing that person's voice, which could be completely different to your own? I think that you, well, the first thing you have to do is kind of realise that it's not about you. That's a really important thing to do, like, because we all do have our own voices and it's very, very important to remember that this work is going to have someone else's name on it. Mm. Um, so you have to kind of suppress that voice right from the start, which I think is really interesting. Mm. Um, possibly because of the amount of work that I had done for features magazines and things like that in the past, I didn't find that as difficult as some people might because I'm quite used to writing for the voice of a, pub- of a publication as opposed to necessarily using my own, which, you know, like you you do write with your own voice for magazines, but you do have to bear in mind the parameters of that publication as well. Um, so I think that was quite an interesting thing to do. Um, but I think the key to it is, is in the interviews. Like the interviews are so important because that's where you've got to ask the right questions to mm. get the information that you need, but also to get that voice, to get that sort of feel for who that person is and how they put words together and, um, and obviously, you want to make them sound like the best possible version of themselves that you can. Um, but yes, the interviews are, are the absolute key to the whole thing. And I was lucky, particularly with the first uh, book that I did, that the person had did have a quite strong voice and they had done an outline, um, which really is a very, very helpful thing because I have been asked to do project in the, projects in the past which were going to be starting from scratch with with the person having no clear picture of exactly what they wanted to do. Mm. And I have to say that I did pass on those jobs because, you know, you end up putting so much extra work in trying to um, work out what the project's all about before yep. you even start that it's not really, well, I, for me at the time, it wasn't worth uh, pursuing. Sure. And, you know, people also need to remember that um, being a ghostwriter, a professional ghostwriter, is something that some people actually just do for a living. Yeah, absolutely. And and the um, post that you're referring to, which was on the blog of the Australian Writers' Centre, was with Libby Harkness. That's right. And um, she's been a ghostwriter a number, th- a number of times, but also she's shared the credit. So her, her byline is often on the book as well. Yep. So she uh, goes wrote with Nola Duncan, um, The Widow, which is a memoir uh, about somebody who discovers her husband's infidelity a year after his death. And um, she also ghost wrote um, with Turiya Pitt. Well, I guess it's not quite ghostwriting because she's, um, she's getting the credit, but she, she wrote with Turiya Pitt everything to live for about Turiya, who, you know, who went through the marathon with where there was the massive fire out west. And I'm actually reading a book at the moment moment that she's co-written with um, Owen Bedell, uh, Confessions of a Qantas Flight Attendant. Oh, (laughs) that's right. You mentioned that one. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So, you know, as a ghostwriter, you certainly can uh, get a lot of diversity in your work. Well, you Um, can, but also uh, there there is another terrific... um, audio interview on the Writer's Centre website with Michael Robotham, of course, the Australian crime fiction writer, terribly Mm -hmm. successful, who started out as a ghostwriter. Yes, that's right. And I think that that's worth having a little listen to as well. Yeah, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. So anyway, in the world of writing... Sorry about that. Sidetracked you. I totally (laughs) took over there. I like a good sidetrack. That's okay. Um, In the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week, I came across an interesting link uh, that is called um, 10 Writing Tips for Aspiring Authors from HarperCollins Canada. 
editors and it's on a blog called the savvy reader we'll put the link in the show notes and Rick, even though they're from <laughs> editors in canada they are universal um <laughs> of course they are <laughs> they're universal pieces of advice and one of them i love the first one because the first one is quite simply read <laughs> <laughs> well, we give that piece of advice across pretty much everything that we say and do, don't we? Because I think, <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, you have to be reading. You have to know what's out there. You have to be seeing. I, yeah, I can't really understand how you can write things without reading. And, and importantly, read outside of your usual genre so that you experience other things because different techniques, different ways of doing things. But it goes on to also include don't focus on your ending. Mm. Be open to change, so mm. important. Don't underestimate narrative in nonfiction. Yeah. Know your readers. Cookbooks are books too <laughs> from a cookbook editor. Quite interesting, yes. <laughs> right now, stress later. Yeah. Fiction needs tension. Know your genre and unplug. In other words, free yourself from distractions. But what I one of the ones I wanted to expand on and get your thoughts on was the right now stress later. The editor, Patrick Crean, one of the publishers, says the most important thing about writing is what is in front of you. The work itself not getting published. When the work is truly ready, then you will find a publisher. Be true to yourself to the work first and foremost. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I completely agree with it. I have to say, I I think that if you're sitting there wondering where this is going to go, what's going to happen, how you're going to sell it, what, you know, will an agent like it? What am I going to do? Mm. Then I, I just don't think you ever effectively um, let yourself go enough to actually really follow the story and to act. This is in fiction. I'm talking about at this mm. point to really um, to really let go and and. And push the parameters of the story because I think people, you can get so caught up in thinking I want to write a book like, you know, X author that you don't ever actually find out what you want to write. Yep. What you're going to come up with. And I think that that's important is to, to just write the story and then see what you might do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. What else has been happening in the world of writing, blogging and publishing this week? I think that um, you mentioned as our writing craft book last episode about Stephen King's book on writing. I did. And I think we've got a link here for, you know, people who haven't read the book yet or can't be bothered to read the book, but we don't (laughs) recommend that. We think you should get the book. It's an awesome book. (laughs) But there is a link here on somebody who has um, distilled the key points Um, and I think you've got some comment on uh, some of those key points, don't you, Al? Well, the only one that I really probably wanted to comment on is it's it's because I, I keep seeing it everywhere. I see it on Pinterest boards and quotes and all sorts of things. And I think that it's this um this business and King is very much a person who hates an adverb. Like yeah. he feels that adverbs should just pretty much disappear from the language altogether. And I think that um that this has been taken up by a lot of people that, you know, adverbs are lazy writing and they're this and they're that and they're terrible. And to, to be honest with you, I, I, I agree with that in some, to some degree. I think that if, you're, if, if your character is constantly walking, you know, crookedly and sitting um, or saying things tremulously or doing any of those sorts of things all the time, then yes, I think you need to have a, a, a sort of a look because it is 
an adverb is a way of telling the reader what's going on rather than showing the reader what's and going on. And I'll just jump in here just in case anyone has forgotten their high school grammar that an adverb is a word that describes a verb. And that's so you could be walking slowly or you could be walking quickly and quickly and slowly are the adverbs. Yes, and particularly Mr King does not like them after dialogue tags. So <laughs> said grumpily or, you know, said tremulously. I do like tremulously today. I'm going to yeah. keep that. Um, however, when you're writing sometimes, you know, it is a very good shorthand way of giving the reader the information without necessarily having to describe the wobble in the voice and the, mm. um, you know, the quivering knees that may go with this. And I think that, you know, used carefully and, and not all the time, I don't actually think there's anything wrong with an adverb. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like anything, you know, you, you can't take one piece of advice as dictated you know, the only way to go. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, everything has a place, just probably not all the time. Yeah. So use them sparingly, but don't ban them altogether. No. And don't take everything you read on Pinterest as gospel. <laughs> Particularly not on Pinterest. <laughs> Although we do love a pinnable quote, don't we? Yeah, you do. We do. Um, so I found something quite interesting in my travels around the blogosphere this this week and it's something I thought would be worth discussing. Um, I read a terrific little post on a blog called Jennifer Represents and it's written by a literary agent. And in this particular post, she received a um, an email from a reader and all the identifying marks have been taken out of this mm. but basically it reads I got an agent several years ago at what is considered a really great NYC agent but I'm not happy my agent frankly scares me and is often not nice and they want me to take my books in a direction I'm not comfortable with at all so we're at a standstill I feel like a girl in a bad relationship afraid to break up in case no one else wants me which is, I think, a really, really interesting story. Now, the the writer of the of the blog post goes on to to, to give some terrific inf, um, information about agents and choosing agents and being with an agent and all of that kind of stuff. But I just wondered if you had ever heard any stories like this. Do you know people who have been with agents and have been sort of like maybe not as happy as they should be? Look, my advice to whoever wrote that email is. Come on, grow a pair. <laughs> Seriously. What are you doing being scared of your agent? If, you're, if your agent wants to take your books in a direction you're not comfortable with, say so yeah. and explain the good reasons why. Of course, you should definitely be authentic to where you want to go, but you also need to weigh up um, the the, uh, you know, considered advice of somebody who's an expert in the area, but always stick to your guns. But it looks like it's, I mean, an agent is on your side. Um, well, an agent, uh, let's point this out, an agent is technically working for you. Exactly. So I mean, you have to got be some self-esteem issues. Yeah, you have to be comfortable. I think it's one of those situations where, and I do think, and I have seen this happen to people where, you know, it, it's a very exciting thing to get an agent, to have somebody mm. who's interested in your work. But sometimes, you know, that person is not the right fit for you. You might need, you know, you might want to, some agents specialise, you know, they, they will give you editorial feedback and, and they will talk you through your work in, or they will make suggestions on what you've done. Others just want to sell it for you. Yep. And, and some people want that. Like, it just depends on what you want from your agent as to whether or not 
the relationship is going to work. And it is a relationship. It's a True. business relationship. It's not a friendship. It's mm. a business relationship. And I think it's important that to people, you know, keep that in mind as well. And so when you're sort of, you know, looking at representation, it's fantastic that someone is interested in you, mm. but I think it's important that you find out whether this person is going to be a good fit for you as well. True, true. So I will um, add a caveat that, um, you know, getting the right agent, yes, it does need to be the right fit. So it's a little bit like dating. You may need to try a couple before you get the one that's right for you. But, before, before, you but before you chuck this one out, especially if they are yep. a really great New York City agency, as that's described right. by this person, yep. um, if, before you throw this one out and go solo without any representation, yep. you know, do what you need to in order to nurture that relationship and have some honest conversations and stick up for yourself in an assertive but polite way. Well, exactly. I mean, as, as, as our friend Jennifer says, you know, if I'm not getting what I need, have I clearly articulated to this person mm. what my needs are? Mm. You know, does and your agent doesn't necessarily have to be nice. I don't think exactly. nice is the word you're after. <laughs> exactly, they're not there to mollycoddle you. They're there just to like get to the publishing deal. Would like to say though that big shout out to my agent Sophie Hamley, who is both fantastic and nice. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> Hope you're listening. <laughs> okay, so our writing craft book this week is I thought we would mention um, style manuals because especially a a, for a lot of listeners who are writing for publications um, I think it's really important to have a good style manual and or dictionary and or you know something like that on your desk. So my default dictionary living in Australia, is the Macquarie Dictionary. And I subscribe, so I pay a subscription for the online version so I can just look it up for everywhere because, you know, I'm not going to cart around that massive thing. And it's really easy it's just to look stuff up online. Um, so I think the subscription is definitely worth it. I use it on a regular basis. Um, but also there are many style manuals such as the Elements of Style by Strunk and White, but also the Australian Government Style Manual um, and, you know, lots of other style manuals. I actually have the Fairfax Style Guide um, sitting on my desk and it, you can buy this in bookshops. You can get it at Booktopia or, you know, various bookshops and it's quite handy, um, particularly because I, you know, wrote for Fairfax. I've been writing for Fairfax the last 13 years or so. Um, so it's good to have that on my desk. What style manual do you have? Um, I have the Strunk and White. I've got Elements of Style by Strunk and White. It was given to me when I was a cadet, like mm. 800 years ago approximately, <laughs> and I have continued to, um, you know, it's moved through, how you know, 27 house moves with me and <laughs> it's still here on my bookshelf because, you know, it just never goes out of style really. Um, but I just wonder too, like how often do you consult your style guide? Oh, um, weekly. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I would say so. Just on those funny little um, like abbreviations or, oh, yeah. sh you know, the, ha how to make it consistent as opposed to how to make it right. Yes, mm. yes, and consistency is often the key. Mm. And mm. it's uh, it's good. And I think you can tell people who have a – when people submit stories to me, you can tell people who have 
who adhere to a style guide and people who don't. Um, so I think it's useful to have one, especially, you know, you can just buy them. I think that um, the Australian Government Style Manual is particularly useful if you're in government, but it actually has a lot of extra things that are not necessary to people who are writing, um, you know, freelance articles. Mm, okay. um, yeah. But anyway, we'll move on to the world of blogging this week. Mm-hmm. I came across a slide share uh, by Darren Rouse, who is, of course, pro blogger. And you'll find him at problogger.net or at problogger on Pro blogger on Twitter. <laughs> yes, that L is important. <laughs> yes. And he's done 10 pieces of advice for successful blogging. Now, he's like, you know, uber blogger of the world. So I'm just going to read a couple of them because they're quite good. Blog feel small. If you have just one reader and your blog changes their life, your blog is big enough. Now, of course, that doesn't help people who really just want to monetize their blog and get 10,000 eyeballs, but it's important to remember that. Um, also, when you're tempted to compare yourself to someone else, compare yourself to when to you when you started. So, mm. it is so easy to fall into the trap of looking at some of the really successful bloggers and thinking, oh my God, how do they get 100,000 unique visitors? But, you know, you've come a long way most likely since you first started your blog as well. Um, it's, it's, so, it's important to remember that you have had some success as well. Absolutely. And a couple of other ones, that, one of the ones that I really, really like is what one small thing what is one small thing that you can do today to move you a step closer to your dreams? And I would just like to add a caveat to that, that and that it not just um, that one small thing is not just one more blog post. I think that if you're blogging, it's like a given that you're going to do some blog posts. But what <laughs> other one small thing can you do? You know, can you spread the word on social media? Can you perhaps be commenting on other people's other blogs? Other people's blogs. Can you be helping other bloggers? Can you be going to a blogging conference? Just those sorts of things. But I won't read um, all of them, but um, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But I, I like number, number nine. Yes, I just like to say nine. that. Number nine is success is usually more about doing the things you know you should do, not learning the secrets that you don't know. Oh, yeah. I think Absolutely. a lot of people are just looking for that one secret that's going to tip them over the edge mm. and turn them into an Uber blogger overnight. And the fact is it's not one thing. Mm. It's doing all the things all the time, you know, consistently. And I think the other thing that people tend to forget is that with blogging, it's as much about time in the game as anything else. You know, mm. it's how much, and, and I'm not talking about like spending hours and hours every day, but it's a, it's an accumulative thing. It's a, um, it's, it's, most bloggers don't happen overnight. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And this reminds me of a book I read recently called You Already Know How to Be Great. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. How is that for you? By Alan Fine and... Uh, it's it's great. The title says it all. You did it already... tell you anything you didn't know? Oh, that, only that I already know. How to <laughs> you already knew. It told so it gives it all away in the cover. What's that all about? It makes so much sense. You just need to do all the stuff that you already know how to do. Not keep searching for that silver bullet. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was good. I only read it a couple of weeks ago. I have to say, the first half of the book was excellent. The second half wasn't that exciting. Okay, um, read the first half of the book, and I'll read that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Okay. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it? 
Well, speaking of great and success and all those things that we've just been talking about, um, our author in residence this week is Kate Forsyth, who is an internationally best-selling author of both fantasy and historic fiction. And she's also, and I have to say this, one of the most generous um one of the most generous authors that I know with her knowledge and information. She is fantastic at sharing what she knows. And um, for that reason, I really, really enjoyed this interview. I got a lot out of it as well. So I hope everybody else does. Kate Forsyth wrote her first novel at the age of seven and is now the internationally best-selling, award-winning author of 30 books, actually probably slightly more than 30 now, ranging from picture books to poetry to novels for both adults and children. She has been voted in the top 20 of Australia's favourite novelists, is an accredited master storyteller with the Australian Guild of Storytellers and is a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. Her new novel, Dancing on Knives, was published in June with Random House. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for having me. Lovely to chat with you. It's always good to talk writing with you, as I know that many of the people who've been in your courses will know. So let's firstly talk about your new novel, Dancing on Knives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm assuming it references fairy tales, which I know you love. It does indeed. Uh, Dancing on Knives is actually a really interesting project because I first began writing it when I was only 16 um, and I worked on it pretty much all through my 20s and it was um, almost published a couple of times. It was long listed for the Vogel Award but didn't make the short list. Um, it was, you know, pretty much my obsession all through my late teens and early 20s. And then when I was 25 years old, I, um, I wasn't getting any closer to my dream of being a published author so I quit um, my job as a journalist and I went back to university and I did a Master of Arts in Creative Arts and um, in, I'm sorry, in Creative Writing and I used um, this novel I've been working on for about 10 years, I used it as my major thesis mm-hmm. um, and it was consequently, I mean, I, I had my first novel published when I was still doing my master's and so after I finished my major thesis, I just put it in my bottom drawer because I was pretty busy. I had an international publishing contract for six books and that kept me pretty busy yes. during, my, uh, yeah, during my early 30s. And then um, I dug out this book out of my bottom drawer and I sent it off and it was consequently published 10 years ago. Oh, it was published? Yeah, it was published under the title Full Fathom Five and it was published under my maiden name, which is Kate Humphrey. And it's my only book set in contemporary times and my only book set in Australia and it was my only book not to sell internationally. Right. Um, Yeah, I know. What a story. No, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And so, um, you know, basically, Dancing on Knives, um, it's, uh, it's a reissue of this book that I, I wrote all through my teens and 20s, which was published in my early 30s and is now has been, you know, it's got a, a, new, a new title, a new cover, and it's published under Kate Forsyth and not under my maiden name, Kate Humphrey. Did you do any rewriting on it? Like now that you have, like you've written so many more books since then and you've learned so many different things about your craft, like is it a book that you that you were still happy with or did you want to rework it or how did you feel about it? it, it I mean, you put your finger exactly on what my problem was. When I heard that Random House wanted to republish it, I was actually terrified. I thought, oh, my God, this, this is my juvenilia. This is the <laughs> book that I wrote when I was still, you know, 
only a child. Um, I knew nothing. And so um, I, I actually got myself into a little bit of a panic, you know, when I had to look at it, you know, for republication. Um, I couldn't sleep. I was sweating. I was trembling. <laughs> and then and then I just said, Kate, you know, you've just got to do it. And I'm a big believer in keeping your backlist alive. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in making sure that books don't die. So I got it out. I reread it for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And um, yes, it's true that um, I could see some major flaws in it straight away. And I, it's true that I could see that it, there was a lot of I wanted to do and I mainly cut because my style is much more spare now than it, it was when I was writing in my 20s. Right. And um, so I cut it back very strongly and I simplified it and I, I think I strengthened it. Um, but I, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to rewrite it completely, which was my first idea. <laughs> Primarily because um, I, in a way, it is a little bit of a snapshot of me as a young writer, and I didn't want to kind of destroy its freshness. Yep. And I knew that, that that Random House loved it and that they wanted to publish it. They didn't really want me complete. I would have had to completely rewrite the book. Right. And so, um, and and they loved uh, it as it was. Yeah, and I, I must admit, I was pleasantly surprised when I read it after my panic attack. Going, <laughs> oh my god, it's going to be terrible! It was, it wasn't terrible at all. So um, I just tried to be really, um, really sensitive to not losing the the style of of me as a younger writer, but bringing all that I've learnt in the past. You know, it's been 17 years since my first book was published. So, yeah, wow, that's amazing. So, I mean, given that you've had some amazing success recently with your bestsellers, The Wild Girl and Bitter Greens, which also <laughs> reference fairy tales. So, I mean, in many ways, the reissue of this book, which also has the fairy tale connection at its heart, is makes perfect sense. Well, that's exactly right. I can certainly understand why Random House wanted to do it. Um, it's a little bit different. Um, that you know, both The Wild Girl and Bitter Greens are. Um, a historical historical yeah um bitter greens is a retelling of rapunzel yep. um while the, the wild girl is more of a straight historical novel that has a very very strong fairy tale and storytelling angle to it yep. dancing on knives is very very different but it does um dancing on knives the title comes from hans christian anderson um, the little mermaid yeah um the original story um the little mermaid had to uh have this spell to um, you know, remove her tail and allow her to have two legs like a human. And the sea witch said to her, every step you take will be like stepping on knives. Mm. And at the end of the story, when the prince has fallen in love with and is marrying someone else, the little mermaid dances at his wedding and it is as if she's dancing on knives. Mm. So um, the use of the fairy tales in that in that novel is very, very different. It's all about a metaphor symbol yeah. and illusion it isn't a retelling of right. that town at all there's no okay. mermaids no mermaids disappointing no <laughs> <laughs> disappointing um so you, you began your publishing career as you mentioned um with a, a six book series the author yes. as an author of fantasy novels um what do you think are the most valuable lessons you've learned from creating your own worlds um oh that's an interesting um question the fact is, is that a uh, it it doesn't matter whether your novel is fantasy or not novel. The author is always creating a fictional con um, construct, yeah. an imaginary world, and 
um, the trick is to try and make that imaginary world feel absolutely real and absolutely true. It has to have that ring of truth. And in actual fact, what you want is for the reader to be, you know, when they're within that fictional world that you have created, they want it to feel, you know, to long for it to be real and to wish that they that never had to leave that world. Um, it doesn't really matter whether you are writing, you know, contemporary suspense novel or historical fiction or um, in a fantasy, all of which I have written. Yeah. The, the craft is all in that sense of making the world feel absolutely real to the reader. And that is, um, you know, that's part of the magic of storytelling. So speaking of the magic of storytelling, I know that you keep a writer's notebook for each of your books because I went to one of your talks once um, and they're quite complicated. They're quite complex, comprehensive, I think is probably the word I'm after. <laughs> I'm sort of working through that. Um, do you, so do you plot the entire novel out in advance or are your notebooks more for, you know, details and imagery and that sort of thing? Both. Okay. Um, but um, th the problem with saying do you plot your novels out in advance is that, um, you know, people tend to think of plotting um, and not plotting as being binary oppositions, you know, yeah. being you know they 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 stand in opposition to each other well in actual fact um all creative artists use some method of planning and plotting and some a method of uh you know allowing space for new inspirations and and creativity it's a spectrum of behaviors um i do not start writing my novel until i have it fully uh, you know, visualized um, in my in my mind's eye, in my imagination. I do not start writing my novel until I can hear the voice of my primary characters, or and and the voice of the story, and it's clamoring in my ear, demanding to be told. I do not start my novel until I feel utterly in control of my material and the world, the the fictional world feels real to me and so that can take an awfully long time and my notebook is a way of um, it, it, you know chronicling my creative journey towards a novel showing the way that I discover the story and allowing me to keep all my research all my ideas all my inspirations in the one spot so that wherever I go I can carry it with me and I can look back on it and I can be re-inspired and I can I can remember what it is that I'm trying to do. So um, as far as plotting goes, I would normally always have a strong sense of my narrative arc. I would always know my key emotional beats, my key psychological turning points. I, I would, I, I imagine it um, like a bracelet with, um, you know, bright glittering beads on it. Mm -hmm. But I don't always know how I'm going to get from one scene to another. And I don't always know how I'm going to solve a particular problem in that scene. I, I might know that that my character, my heroine, will be in a terrible situation, but I may not know how she's going to get out of that terrible situation. I always leave lots of room in the book for the answers to come to me as I need them. Okay, so are you working on one project at a time or do you have a few on the go at once? I mean, you write for both children and adults and you seem to have books coming left, right and centre, like you're, you're, you know, very busy. Um, so are you planning a book each year across each market? I mean, how do you manage the schedule and how do you manage those notebooks? Is it one at a time, the others go in a drawer or how does it work? 
Um, okay, there's a couple of questions Sorry, in there. Sorry, it's so. all in there, isn't it? Like I've yeah, just given so, you like a world to answer. I will try and, my, and work my way um, through each of those points. Um, I, I very much prefer to only work on one project at a time. Um, when I'm working on a book, I become totally obsessed by that book. I, I find it very difficult to do anything else at all, um, even answering emails or, um, you know, cooking meals. I find it, it, it very difficult because I have this incredible hyper-focus where all of my attention, all of my energy is poured into the book that I'm working on now. However, I do not live in an ideal world mm. and so I'm constantly being hit with um, with you know different uh, you know jobs and tasks that need to be do- done. This is complicated for me by the fact that um, that my books are published internationally and so each different pub- you know so for, for example, Bitter Greens was published in Australia two years ago um, and published in the UK last year and now it's coming out in the US in September. And so my US publishers, uh, constantly asking me to do work for them, write um, essays and articles and blogs and, right. you know, bits and pieces like that. And so even though, you know, Bitter Greens in Australia is is at, at the end of its work, a whole new reign of work is be- is beginning for it overseas. Right. Um, you know, similarly, um, the children's books, I have um, two children's books coming out later this year one um it was actually meant to come out in september and then the next one in november but they've had so many early orders for it they've actually brought the publication date forward and so i had thought that i could finish my novel i'm writing now before i had to do all the work that was um is necessary uh, with the publication of a book for example touring and um and writing and and public appearances and now it looks as if that has been brought forward and so that's encroaching on, upon my writing time as well. So wow. in, an, in an ideal world, <laughs> I would only write one book at a time, yeah. but it, they always overlap. And so how I manage this is I tend to, uh, whatever I'm working on at that time, I pour all my energies into it and all my focus into it. And then I try and have one or two days a week where I don't write um, and where I look after administration, answering emails, social media, and catching up on all the little jobs like writing essays, writing blogs, so that I have at least, it, it used to be one day a week, but um, I'm pretty much now finding it two days a week and but, often my weekends. But the other five days, you're making time for the writing? Yes, um, absolutely. So um, I would normally start writing um, as soon as I get to my computer, which is normally around 10 in the morning. And I'd, I'd work through um, with a couple of breaks pretty much through to, to, until it's time to cook dinner. Right. Okay. Because you also have a family and you also, I know that you, um, like you seem to read enormously because you have, you know, you run a lot of reviews on your blog. Um, I find that one of the most interesting things about your blog is is the number of books that you read and and um, and the reviews and things that you do there. And mm-hmm. so like when I see all that activity, like you just seem to have the world's busiest schedule. I do wonder how you make time for that, for the writing. <laughs> I do have the world's um, busiest schedule and <laughs> and even though I am constantly trying to rein it back in again, I can't help myself. I'm always adding new projects because I have so many ideas, so many things I want to do. Um, so I, I generally try and focus. Family, I mean, I do. I have three children and um, 
I'm married, so I have a husband who, who requires a little bit of attention every now and again. <laughs> um, drag you away from the computer. <laughs> so pretty much, though, the whole household is built around, I mean, I've always built my writing routine around my children, but they're all at school now, and, um, you know, both my boys are teenagers, so they're fairly independent. Um, and my husband also works from home, and so we share the work of the house and the cooking and the cleaning and the shopping. He does most of the shopping and most of the cooking. Bless. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm incredibly lucky. He, he, um, his study is actually right upstairs. And so he makes me lunch every day. And so I'll be working away. And around 12.30, I hear his chair roll back. And then I hear him come down and go, oh, good. Lunch will be ready soon. <laughs> and I keep on writing. And then he makes me lunch. Um, and we have lunch you know, together and talk over what we're doing. And then we each go back to our separate studies. You know, we share the work of driving the children around. And I, I travel a lot. Um, the work, you know, the touring is what's hardest on the family. Yeah. And so when I'm I'm away, he, he looks after the, you know, keeping the machinery of the family um, flowing smoothly. And then pretty much as soon as I come home, he goes, great, I'm going to the pub. It's all or, yours. Yep, or I'm going to the football and it's all yours and um and then I take over most of the work because we're you know, we're at home. Yeah. Um so it isn't that hard to The flexibility um, of that is is a huge bonus. Absolutely. Yep. And it's um I'm just really helped by the fact that I have a very loving and supportive family. My children are um all, you know, very happy, well balanced and you know, we don't really ever have you know, major problems with them. So, um, and they all, you know, they've never known anything different. I've always written, um, you know, and I have an open door policy, which means that, you know, they can come and interrupt me anytime they like. I normally like to say that I I want to see the blood, (laughs) visible bones or real tears is what I need to be interrupted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, you know, they know not to come with me o- about an argument over whose turn it is to feed the dog, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, no. But that's... so, no, you know, we manage pretty well, really. And, um, you know, like all families, sometimes we have times when it doesn't work so well, but most of the time it works really, really well. And so that gives me um, a lot more time. Um, and as far as the reading goes, well, I love to read. It's one of the the great joys of my life and if I ever if my ever if I ever get so busy that I can't read then I know that I'm 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 damaging what I love in in life and so I pull back on the work another thing that I do is I only read for pleasure and so people are constantly asking me to read this or read that or review this and review that and I have an absolutely strict um, policy that I will only review what I want to when I want to. So, you know, yep. you know, people can send me a book, but I won't promise that I'll read it and I certainly w- won't promise to read it by a certain date. <laughs> no, no. I don't think you need to add that pressure to your life at all. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And I, I find that most people are, are understanding of that and um, are just happy that I do read and I, I do review as much as I do. Definitely. So just on that too, like just in the last couple of years, I've noticed that your social media presence and your online presence has definitely grown. You've, um, you know, built your Twitter accounts and your Facebook accounts and your blog and you're all over Goodreads, which I think is fantastic. What, 
are your thoughts on author platform? Like, do you think it's important for writers today to have that presence? Like, and, and what are the building blocks of your platform? Um, I, th- I think it's absolutely essential um, for a number of different reasons. Um, I think a lot of people, um, I don't actually like the term author platform no. or, um, you know, branding or um, any of these, you know, uh, marketing speak. Yep. You know, for me, social media is all about reaching out and connecting with like-minded people. Yep. It's all about finding kindred spirits. It's all about sharing my passionate love for reading and writing um, and, you know, assuming that they're, that the people who who want to connect with me share the same passion. Um it is true that I use social media as a way of people keeping informed yeah. um, about if I'm teaching a, a workshop or running a writer's retreat or if I have a new book coming out. But that's primarily because um, it saves people from constantly emailing me <laughs> and asking me these questions. I say, just follow me on Twitter and, you know, then you, then you don't need to email me every couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and then I find that, um, like I find for myself that when I read a book and I've loved that book, the first thing I do is I go and look for the writer online. I go and check out their website. Um, I, I see if they're on Facebook, see if they're on Twitter. I see if they would be interested in doing an interview with me or, um, you know, I, I see what I can do to help them yep. reach an audience. Um, and I've built some of the most wonderful friendships of my life have been built through this reaching out to other people and, th- and through them mi- reaching out to me. Um, I think it's all about connection and communication and I think that's why we write in the first place. Now, I I really don't like it if I can't, you know, find a writer or if they have, you know, put up barbed wire around themselves to keep yeah. people away. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, if it's too hard for me to contact them, I don't do it. Um, I agree. I'm all over that. (laughs) It's the number of people that I thought, oh, they'd be interesting to interview and then I can't find a contact for them. Um, Mm. It's it's very off-putting and and I feel like those authors are doing themselves a disservice. And can I tell you, um, I was asked last year to launch a book by an author that I'd never heard of and didn't know. And I was a bit taken aback because normally you ask your friends to launch your books. And I thought, I've never heard of this. And I Googled him. And there was he, there was no there was no mention of him anywhere on the internet at all. He didn't have a website. wasn't on Twitter. wasn't on Facebook. Wow. He had no um, internet presence at all. And I went, ooh, bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> not going there. And so you know, I, I didn't you know because I had no way of judging who he was and what his works were like and where he came from and if I was going, you know, there was no way I was going to go and and travel and stand there and introduce someone I didn't know. Which is fair enough because you didn't know him. <laughs> no, that's right. So I, um, this is a very long answer to a short question but um, basically I feel that, yes, um, it's very important for writers to have a presence um, on the internet, to, particularly to have a website that is full informative and dynamic. I think that it's a mistake to think that social media is about self-marketing. I think it's about... Um, you know, disseminating information and making friends and sharing, um, you know, uh, you know, making yourself accessible and uh, and I guess um, a real person instead of an artificial construct. Um, and how does one do it? Well, I, I think the only way to do it is to be active and be aware and and find out what suits you. I'm not on everything 
because I blog, I don't use Tumblr or any of the other no. um, micro-blogging um, and I don't tend to use Instagram because um, I'm not very good at taking photographs. So. No, me either. <laughs> and I don't so, like photos of myself, so that number. No, <laughs> me either. So you know, yeah. I um, I, you know, words are my passion. So I use. I love Twitter because I love the constraint of the form, and I love the fact that so many writers are on Twitter, and um, I actually get most of my information about the industry and about what people are doing off. Twitter and I, I find Facebook, I, I love Facebook as well, but I find it a, a different type of an energy. It's more about my friends and people that I know sharing what we're doing in our everyday life. So that's what I, I, I like both of those things. Yeah. And I would just advise anyone to just take it slowly and do what you feel comfortable with and, and think of it as being um, a pleasure, not, not a chore. Yeah, I totally agree. Um. So speaking of being accessible, you do run a lot of working, uh, working, a lot of writing workshops, like you, you share what you know a lot. Um, so I'm just wondering, what are the sort of three biggest mistakes that you see over and over from new or aspiring authors? Like where, you know, where are people who are starting out, where are they going wrong? Well, the, the biggest problem that I see um, again and again and again is, um, is poor structure, is um, not, I mean... I find that a lot of people who have written a novel and, you know, they've shown it to this alpha reader and that beta reader and they've, you know, they've done this course and that course and everyone agrees that, that you know, they know where, how to construct a sentence. There's nothing wrong with their writing but their book continues to not be picked up, continues not to find a publisher and continues to be rejected and they think, what am I doing wrong? Well, 99% of the time it's poor structure. They don't understand the key turning points. They don't understand, um, you know, the importance of crisis and resolution. They don't understand um, how uh, each chapter needs to be interlinked um, and yet separate, you know, have its own internal structure. Um, I see this problem again and again and again. I think it's one of the reasons I, I do a, a course with the Australian Writer Centre called Plotting and Planning, mm -hmm. and I find it's very, very popular, and basically I could just do it and never write again. I could just <laughs> teach that one workshop and never have time to write because, um, you know, people find it so bewildering and so overwhelming. So um, structure is the first one. The... Um, second major problem that I see is having too many characters and, um, you know, basically too much happening in their book, too many scenes that don't need to be there, too many, too much kind of vagueness and wooliness. Right. I, I, I'm always trying to make people, you know, deconstruct their own work and make sure that everything that happens in the book is entirely essential and it's, it's not simply repeating or reiterating a point that they've made earlier. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know that I write big books. Yeah. So, um, but I, I, I do still feel that every scene in the book needs to have a purpose. It must have some kind of function. Yeah. Um, the third major problem that I see is that um, people aren't taking the time to edit and rewrite. They're, you know, they finish a first draft and they think that, is all that needs to be done. Um, and they aren't, you know, so that you have all kinds of little problems, things like, you know, overuse of, of favourite phrases, weak chapter beginnings, chapters that are too long, um, uh, little um, 
you know, you know, weak metaphors, yep. things that a good cut and polish and a good rewrite, you know, deconstruct and rewrite would fix. But because they've spent so long writing their first draft and they're all in that kind of giddy joy of first finishing it, <laughs> they don't take the time to do the rewrite, which should actually really be as much work as the actual first draft was. That's a lesson that you mostly learn by doing though, isn't it? Like I remember finishing my first manuscript and just thinking, well, that's done. There I am. Mm. I've written a book. I'm so excited by myself. Um, Whereas now when I approach a manuscript that's fit like the first draft, I approach it thinking about all the things that I need to remove, fix, change. And it is a lot of work. And I, I do think that people possibly underestimate that. Like, I mean, do you do a lot of rewriting? I do. I mean, um, I do a lot of editing. Uh, 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 um, for me, it's a lot of cutting, mm-hmm. um, a lot of cutting, and I really, really um, look at my at, at my weaknesses. So my dialogue and um, things like that, I spend a, a lot of attention on in the final editing process. Um, it isn't so much rewriting for me because I rewrite a lot during the actual writing process. Okay. It's, it's more about um, looking at it structurally and making sure that it um, it's as strong as it can be. Um, you know, I'm constantly rewriting what I've written before, before I move forward in the story. Okay. And so I edit as I go. Right. Um, yeah, I... I agree with you that this is, is something that comes with experience and the, and the more books you've written, the more you understand the importance of the editorial process. Yeah. Um, and that, that is one of the reasons why I'm always trying to encourage people to take, you know, to put their first draft away you know, for a month and then get it out and then you know, absolutely deconstruct it and look at it with a very cool and clinical eye before they start sending it off to agents and publishers. Okay, and so my last question for today would then be what are you working on at the moment, given that you're always working on something? <laughs> I am always. I'm like a, a chain smoker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not happy unless I've got a project underway. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on a new historical novel for adults. It's a retelling of Beauty and the Beast set in Nazi Germany. Um, it takes place between 1938 and 1945, so um, over the course of the Second World War, um, and it's in um, it deals with the German underground and the German resistance. Fantastic! All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that on the shelves in. When are we looking forward to seeing that next year, perhaps? Um, hopefully April, May next year. Fantastic. And in the meantime, I will put your website and your Twitter handle and your Facebook page on our in our show notes so that people can visit you. But you are kateforsyth.com.au, I believe. That is right. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for talking to us today. I really appreciate your time. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Alison. Oh, I love Kate. She's fantastic. She is. Um, we see her regularly because she pops into the Australian Writers' Centre here in Sydney because she teaches um, a few of our courses here. And one of the most exciting things that she's doing with us is she's taking a group of our students to Oxford, as in Oxford in the UK, um, uh, later this year. And that writing tour is almost booked out actually so she's yeah it's going to be awesome they're going to be visiting the Cotswolds and obviously Oxford University they're going to be visiting Stonehenge and um, 
places like where Shakespeare used to go to and places where Harry Potter hangs out because, of course, Harry Potter is a real person. Of course it is. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, we'll put that link in the show notes. But, yeah, it's going to be an awesome writing tour where, you know, you not only get to see some fantastic things, you get to learn from Kate about how to write. Um, but let's move on. What is our web pick this week? Well, this week um, I came across a website called 750words.com and it came up in a – I'm in a a Google Plus community Mm. and it came up in that – it's a place where writers share tips and talk about things and it's really quite interesting. I think one of the real bonuses about Google Plus is that community aspect of them where you can find like-minded people and get together because I know there's a lot of people that look at G Plus and just go – what are, what are we doing here? What's yeah. this all about? Um, well, I, I'm here to say that the writing communities on there are fantastic. But anyway, that's a whole other sidetrack. This this one is about a website called 750words.com. And basically, you become a member and you get yourself a little home there on the internet, somewhere to write 750 words a day or right. a week or whenever. And you get a, a, a scorecard each month. And you get points for writing something, you get points for writing 750 words, you get points for writing, you know, two or three days in a row. And, I mean, it's one of those things, I guess it works in a similar way to NaNoWriMo, Mm. which I've always found to be quite a useful thing in that sense of having a target having a scorecard, having a goal, having a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, I think if, if you're the kind of author who gets something out of NaNoWriMo, then this may be a way to continue with that all year. Um, have you heard of the website? You know I what have... a late adopter I am. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard of the website and um, I did consider participating and um, logging in, but then I thought, oh, one more thing that i got to add to my list, yes. <laughs> I must admit. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is. is- is it, a, you, it is a good discipline. Yeah, and also I think if you're working on a big project, it's a great way to, you know, to make sure that you get those, get those words done. 750 words a day adds up, you know, like over time. Oh, yeah. And um, it is a way of just moving forward every single day. And mm. I think that sometimes, you know, as we've discussed before, we have so many methods of procrastinating and oh, it can yeah. be a writer's absolute worst um, enemy, and mm. this is a way, I guess, of at least challenging yourself. Do it for a month, see how you go. Yeah. And you know, at the end of that month, you're going to have more words than you started out with. And for me, that's a bonus. Fantastic. Um, what's our working writer's tip this week? Well, our working writer's tip is something that I'm just completely making up myself because I've decided this is not a question or anything like that. This this is something that's coming from the fact that, as you know, I do a lot of um, a teaching at the Writer's Centre with online courses and various things. And this is something that I see over and over and over again. And I think it's the one thing that if a a freelance writer can get on top of this, it really, really helps mm. with their... Um, ability to sell a story. And what I want to talk about here is the angle on a story. What I often find myself um, seeing and what I get pitched regularly when people practice their pitching to me, they're pitching me a subject area. So they'd say, I want to write a story about, um, and this comes up quite a lot, about working mothers who um, are going back to work after having a baby. Mm. Now, I know that this is a subject because I have written a book about this. So I know that this is something that we could do 50,000 words on without a problem. What I need to know from a freelance writer is what are they going to bring me in this story that is fresh? What is new? What is the angle? How are they going to write 800 words instead of 80,000 on this subject? <laughs> and I, um, it's something that I cover because I wrote um, in my book, Get Paid to Write, um, 
it's the first thing that I write about as when it comes to tips for becoming a freelance writer. And the reason for it is that I made the mistake myself when I first started out as a freelancer. I did a story for Cosmopolitan and the story was that I had to find women with hairy armpits and I had to interview them about why they chose to have hairy armpits. <laughs> this is the kind of story that you do, right? So there I am and I'm searching out my women with hairy armpits and I had a doctor to talk about the you know hygiene aspects and I had all these sorts of things and I wrote this story and it was supposed to be a thousand words and it ended up at 1600 and I had, I had put in all manner of details about these women's lives and who they were and how amazing they were and the editor came back to me and she said to me, Al, where are the armpits in this story? What I want is the armpits. Find the armpits. So I rewrote the story, focusing on the armpits, which after all were the point of the story in the first place, and I ended up with 900 very good words as opposed to 1,600 quite ordinary ones. So yep. all I'm saying is you've got to find the armpits in any story. Absolutely. What is the point of difference? Um, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming that this is something that you see a lot as well. Absolutely. I think that's such a great point because that's what's going to set, you know, freelance feature writers apart from the freelance feature writers who don't make it. And that is a, a really clear understanding of the angle. So to kind of extend from your armpit story, but not about armpits. <laughs> you don't like my armpits? I like, I like the armpits. But let's say um, the other one that you mentioned about mothers returning to work after they have kids. So what's really important when they're determining, when people are determining an angle is to make sure as well that the angle suits that publication. So, for example, yes. the angle for something like um, women's agenda would be very much about the strategies on what you can do as a mother returning to work after having children. However, the angle for something like, um, you know, BRW or a business publication would probably be geared towards the employer and these yeah. are the strategies you need to put in place. Here are the policies. Here's what the legislation um, says uh, about encouraging mothers to return to work. The yep. angle for something like Essential Baby or Essential Kids, you know, the website Essential Baby and Essential Kids, which is 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 a little bit more about how I can then look after my children when I return to work. Yeah. The angle for something like Cosmo or Cleo, well, there is no angle because the age group for Cosmo and Cleo, they, they're not having children and returning to work. <laughs> no, I, no, actually, I disagree with that because there is an angle for those magazines because, you know, there, there's that whole notion of can I have a baby now and then still get back into the workplace. Right. So there are angles. And the other thing to think about too is the news. There's a lot of news stories, particularly, okay, today, for example, there's a story about the fact that women who go, who return to work end up paying out 60 cents in the dollar for childcare, et cetera, et cetera. Is it worth it? Mm. Um, those kinds of things. Okay, why is it worth paying 60 cents in the dollar? Because if you don't go back now, will you get back in in five years? These are the kinds of things like you, you need to extrapolate out from what's happening around you, the conversations that people are having and find the niche topic within that huge subject that's going to work for that publication. Absolutely. We could talk for hours on this. We topic. could. <laughs> we could. Okay. Instead, if you want more um, help on angles, go to our magazine writing course and we'll talk to you for 10, <laughs> 10 
10 hours about it. Um, but uh, that brings us sort of towards the end of our podcast. We'll put a link to the magazine writing course um, in the show notes for those of you who are interested in learning more about angles. Uh, but um, thank you so much to everyone who's been leaving reviews on iTunes and also sending us emails and tweets and Facebooks. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you would like us to answer a question, please email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. You can find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. You can find Alison at alisontate.com. Myself at valeriekoo.com. And um, what are you going to be up to till we next chat, Al? I am going to be burrowing my way towards the light, Val. That's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be climbing <laughs> out of the rabbit hole of editing and writing and all the things that I'm doing, and I am going to pop my head up above the surface and go, yes, <laughs> will there, done. Will there be celebrations and a party? Oh, there will be dancing in the streets. There will be a parade, I think, although it may only consist of me and my two boys, but that's okay. We'll be excited. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, I will be looking forward to actually – catching up with you in real life because I will be doing that shortly because obviously we live, you know, hours apart. Well, you know, we're based hours apart from each other. Um, And we do all of this online and over Skype, Uh, but we will be catching up in real life. So maybe we can have the parade then. There'll be two of us. (laughs) Fantastic. Perhaps in that small bar that (laughs) specialises. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That we were talking about last time. That would be fun. All right. Fantastic. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.